This is the Grow My Clinic podcast by Clinic Mastery, where we help you deliver amazing client experiences to grow your clinic. Well, welcome to another episode of the Grow My Clinic podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm excited to be with you for another episode today because we have Sarah Bartholomew's on the line. Uh, Sarah is the founder on and CEO of ULegal, which is a, a legal concierge service, which is an interesting way to, to pitch a legal service. Uh, but ULegal is her company. Uh, it's essentially a new category of law firm providing corporate, commercial, all sorts of legal services to a whole range of clients from itty-bitty sole traders all the way through to a number of ASX-listed companies. Uh, Ulegal does things differently, which is really exciting. Team members spread all across Australia and different countries. Sarah's won Telstra Business Women's Awards. She's been published in, um, in Forbes magazine, CEO. She writes for Huffington Post. She's presented at TEDx. I could go on for hours. Sarah, welcome to the Grow My Clinic podcast. How are you this morning? Thanks for having me. I'm well. <laughs> You've got a bit of a bio to live up to now. I know. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's, let's have a bit of a chat. Um, your area of expertise is, is a fascinating world to clinic owners out there. We are typically, as the listeners of this podcast, are health professionals that have moved into business and now owning their clinic and looking to navigate that world. So as we get through this podcast, we're going to touch on a number of those things, uh, things like employees versus contractors and ownership arrangements and structures. But before we get into that, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your story and explain what ULegal is and how you've, uh, how you've ended up with something like ULegal. Sure. I was previously a corporate lawyer, so I worked for two public companies after leaving a big law firm. So I was disgruntled working as a litigator, found that I was just fighting with people all the time, which you do because you're a litigator, <laughs> and it just didn't work for me. I, it, it, it wasn't the future. So I went in-house and worked for two big corporates and the second company I worked for was under a, a lot of financial distress and my job there was to sell the non-core assets and make sure that the company could continue thriving, which it's now doing, so that's mm -hmm. good news. But mm -hmm. when I sold the last non-core asset, which was the largest one, I was made redundant. Right. And I knew that was going to happen because I knew that I had a very fixed role and essentially I'd succeeded, but I was seven months pregnant with my second child, oh, my wow. daughter Nicola. <laughs> and so timing-wise, it wasn't great. My dad was diagnosed with cancer around that time. So you guys are health professionals. You know how um, discombobulating that can mm. be uh, for family life. So there was a lot going on and... Basically, I just decided I wanted to take um, my life into my hands. I didn't want to wait until Nicola was born and get another job in six months and um, have that risk of losing it again. I wanted to control my destiny. And so the very next day after I lost my job, I started my practice, which at that mm -hmm. stage I named after myself, like a lot of law firms, SJB uh -huh. Legal. Yes. And... Ran that with one foundation client until Nicola was born. Took about six weeks off and then I worked when she was sleeping for the right. next few months. 
And during that time, I found that I had a lot of other people interested in having service from me and I felt like I couldn't help everyone. So I looked for ways in which I could help more people that didn't mm -hmm. necessarily involve me doing the work. Sure. So it's a huge trap for professionals. Um, they grow this expertise and they want to be the people that do all the work as well as running the business. So I looked at what it was that held traditional services businesses back. Um, mm -hmm. In my case, obviously legal firms, huge rent mm -hmm. and overheads, overheads of unproductive staff and looked at how I could design a business that overcame those issues. Sure. So Legal was born about six months later yeah. um, when I started using contractor lawyers. So they all had that top tier background that I had. So mm -hmm. I knew that they had great training and good habits and were very client focused um, and that they would provide the same sort of service that I would provide as well. Yeah, fascinating. I think there's so many similarities in your journey for a lot of health business owners out there working Absolutely. for maybe in the public system or a, a different yeah. clinic, maybe made redundant or get frustrated with the confines of um, working in that sort of corporate type world, start their own practice, realize that they're very good at what they do and are passionate, but can't do everything themselves, wrestling yeah. with expensive overheads and how to grow and help more people but you've got limited hours in the day and <laughs> you had a new yeah, and I think it's particularly hard for health businesses where seeing patients is really important in person, mm -hmm. whereas for us we can have some flexibility. We're speaking through Skype now. We can yeah. um, talk to people on the phone or we can meet people in person at a place and time that suits them, whereas that doesn't necessarily translate in health businesses. And I think... That being said, though, I love that you've been able to think about it and challenge that. And uh, I just had a, a podcast episode recently with Karen Finnan of Online.Physio, yes. who runs a completely remote physio practice. Uh, Marian from PhysiTrack on another episode, speaking about telehealth and uh, mm -hmm. remote consulting. So sometimes I wonder if, I'm sure there's plenty of people in the legal world who would challenge you and say, you need Absolutely. to be have a bricks and mortar office, office. Uh, being able to think about how you can help service clients in the best possible way and create an amazing experience means you can push the profession forward. Yeah. Um, and thinking about what your clients actually want, not what has always been done right. is, is how you innovate and yeah. asking them. Is That's the fascinating. So Tell me about that. Did you get much pushback from your colleagues and how much of that, did that shape your mindset or were you so client-focused that you didn't really listen to your colleagues? I think that um, I did listen to them but I had always thought that technology could be used in a better way to serve clients and that I was just very confused about why it hadn't. When I was at uni, I did uh, a placement for eight months or so at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which is right next to Silicon Valley. And so tech's since then always been really a very important part of my world and understanding how it's used for innovation. And I found I got pushback from everywhere here, um, including our very own Law Society, which which I lobbied for two years to change the provisions around how they treat contractor lawyers 
just saying times have changed, guys. Contractor lawyers aren't employees. We need to change the way that insurance works. You're at the moment double insuring and that's just not necessary. So, yeah, yeah. they've changed that in the last year. So that's a win. But <laughs> it, it can often feel like, why am I doing this? Like right. this is uh, banging my head against brick walls for ages and ages, but eventually you get through and the light can shine through. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I love it. And so now you legal um, services a range of different clients and, and sectors, but what is it that you love? What is it that lights you up personally? So uh, that's a very pertinent question because last year we we're doing quite a lot of corporate work still, and we did a transaction that was a half a billion dollars, so a multinational sale of one mm-hmm. of our clients to, yeah. a, to a bigger client. And it was after that that I just felt completely exhausted and did a, a real values review of myself, and I thought these aren't the type of clients that give me energy because yeah. I lost all my client contacts when they um, merged and, you know, the people that I felt like I'd gone through war with doing that transaction with just had now had no jobs like I had at the end of my corporate (laughs) role. Um, So I realised that I get energy and want to work with people who help people and health professionals do that so directly that, yeah, it's really a a core focus of, of you legal now. That's amazing. And so you're working with medical practices, health professionals, allied health, the whole range yes. out of out of an extension of finding your ideal client. Um, like we said at the start, many health professionals need legal advice, don't know where to start. And mm. if that's something that aligns with, uh, with you legal, that's amazing. Can you talk to us a little bit about... Um, how you've positioned you legal and your role as the the face of the business, writing books and speaking, has that been deliberate? And what has been the outcome of that? What's been the effect? It absolutely has been deliberate. And in the legal world, you would know lots of law firms, they name themselves after the partner, which mm-hmm. I initially did, as I said. Uh-huh. And I realized that that was going to be a limit to growth because I didn't want people saying, Sarah, um, can I talk to you? I only want to deal with you because you're the name that's um, that's on the letterhead. But I even this morning had a call from a client, a client or prospect that said, um, "Is there someone in your team who can do this?" Sure. And that is every time I hear that is absolutely music to my ears because yes, there's someone in my team who can help, and I'll be there overseeing things or I can help with strategy, but. All my time can't be tied up doing client work. Otherwise, it's, you know, time's the limiting factor. Sure. So you're straddling this divide of being the face of the business and speaking and books, but yet not doing as much or much of the the client consulting. Is that right? That's right. Great. Has that been fruitful in terms of getting out there and being public and uh, publishing books? Does that translate into business growth? I think so. I mean, we've grown, we grew exponentially in our first couple of years and that growth has continued every year since. So I think it's working, but I I got asked yesterday during a coffee meeting, what's the silver bullet? What have you done that's um, making a difference? And to be honest, I don't really know. We have marketing people now who are monitoring like, what the impact of different marketing initiatives are so that we can be a bit more across that. But I find that I meet people and they're like, I've read both your books 
And that might have happened six months a year ago, a year ago, and so it hasn't necessarily translated into immediate legal need sure. but maybe has us at top of mind or has that credibility that, you know, we're willing to give information away for free mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of law firms that do that. So it's definitely a differentiator. I love that. And that really is the, the key lesson for listeners is that what are you doing to differentiate yourself as a, like, really, let's be honest, legal services are a commodity. You can look through the well, the online yellow pages now and there's a million different legal offices, but everyone knows that you legal is different, that Sarah does this and you legal does that and it positions you. So you're not just competing on price at the lowest common denominator. Um, I love that. And so really though, the business growth is not just from you doing the public stuff, although that's a key part, but you're building a great team, delivering a great service, niching down your ideal clients. It's all of those combined that um, put you legal where it is today. Uh, I love it. That's, uh, That's really exciting. Let's change tact a little bit and let's talk about some of the legalities of running a health health business. So listeners here would be owners of podiatry, speech pathology, exercise physiology, uh, osteopath clinics. What are some of the challenges that you're hearing regularly that face business owners of, uh, of health clinics? Oh, okay. So I've got a meeting tomorrow with a clinic owner that uh, has a partner and things aren't working out well between them. So they've incorporated a company and they don't have a shareholders agreement. And so that I'm not sure how they want to separate. So that's going to be a challenge. Um, Does one partner want to buy the other partner out? Uh, Is the name more important to another partner? Is um, where they operate from particularly important for one of them and not the other? Does one of them want to go and go back to uni and and do something else? I don't know yet, but making um, sure that, you set the rules before you play the game together is a really good lesson out of that. Okay. Uh, I think that is something that practice owners that are in working with someone else as another, like as co-practice owners should be thinking about. Okay. Another meeting I've got later today is a group of practice owners that have got together that are really confused about when contractors are deemed employees. <laughs> And so I'm going to chat to them about how that might work for their, they're they're a group of individual clinic owners that that have regular meetings together to share intel and and get information. And so they want to talk to me about what they're doing and whether it's infringing. And for them, they, they run quite big clinics and so payroll tax is an issue for them. Sure. And uh, out of that, we had another matter last week where we had an urgent client call because they were having a regulator come out and have an inspection the next day and they wanted to make sure that there was a lawyer there to help them and advise them while they were going through that process because it was completely foreign um, to them. They didn't know what to do yeah. and having someone by their side that they could trust that they knew knew the process was really yeah. important for them. So there's a few things, I guess. Another yeah. thing that looks like um, practice owners are particularly interested in is the idea of reviewing, having a, a lease, entering into lease agreements and knowing that they're getting 
a fair deal from a landlord um, sure. and making sure that they're set up for future success. As I said, before I was a litigator and I my main purpose in life now is to avoid people getting caught in the trap of litigation. So making sure that they spend the money, even though it can be a hard investment to make on the front end, mm -hmm. rather than spending 10 times that on the back end fighting it out. Fascinating. I guess I would imagine there's some really common um, challenges. Why don't we tackle them a little bit from the point of view of a startup and yeah, then sure. perhaps from a, uh, a business that's been around a long time. Let's go back to ownership structures. Mm -hmm. If someone is early stage, maybe they're a solo practitioner looking at taking on maybe their first employee, thinking about bringing someone else in as a co-owner, mm -hmm. what are the pros and cons of a partnership versus an incorporation? So in I guess talking to your accountant firstly is a great idea to do um, because they'll understand where you're at from a revenue point of view and how to make it the most tax effective. Um, but partnership is actually quite an old-fashioned way to run a business right. nowadays. It doesn't limit your liability. So if you and I went into partnership together as individuals, mm -hmm. then you and I would be liable for each other's acts and omissions. So if I started stealing all the money and um, we as a partnership owed money to a bunch of creditors, then mm -hmm. you would be equally responsible for that. So they could take my house because of your misdemeanours. Correct. And, yeah. you know, everyone goes into business with this honeymoon. It's going to be a <laughs> fabulous idea. But sometimes things happen in people's lives, whether or not that's someone's um, partner getting sick and then being a carer for a long period of time and not being able to put into sure. what they initially thought time-wise or I've heard about legal partnerships where, where people start <laughs> speak negatively about my profession but just like things in their life change um, from a romantic point of view and they no longer have have access to, to what they had when they started out so that's worth thinking about in terms of partnership so as you can see I'm not a huge fan of a partnership model but incorporating a company it's a separate legal entity and mm -hmm. um, you can be both be shareholders and your liability is limited to the amount that you've put in so whether that's a hundred shares at one hundred dollars, mm -hmm. um, and whether or not you own that as your own self or as a as a trust is another mm -hmm. question. So, going to get into <laughs> nuts and bolts uh, of the legals, but um, and then making sure that that relationship is governed by a shareholders agreement and not just the, the constitution of the company is also a really good idea. Okay, great. So, partnerships are a little bit outdated, still have potential, but there's some real challenges around partnership. Whereas a, a limited liability company means that you're protected and you can have the right agreements in place around trusts and shareholders agreements. Yeah, and then the, the lease is in that company. It's not in your own personal names and insurance is easy to coordinate through a company. The assets are all owned in it. And then what you've done is you've created a separate legal entity that owns the business. And so if one of you wants to leave, that's relatively easy. You just change mm -hmm. the shareholdings and you've in your shareholders agreement, you've already decided how the value of the business is going to be calculated. So sure. that's a benefit as well. You don't have to start from scratch or get someone that you don't know to, to value the business. And also you, if the, if the two of you want to sell the business to another entity, that's easy as well. You mm -hmm. can sell either the shares in the business or the assets of the business separately from the company, depending on the circumstances. <laughs> as I know I think you said, oh, yeah, it's easy to find legal advice, but 
legal advice as with medical health advice is always it depends. Of course. It depends on the circumstances. Yeah, I love it. And obviously you're not an accountant, but there's plenty of tax benefits to a company structure versus a partnership or a sole trader. Absolutely. Depends okay. on the revenue, definitely. So let's go then, let's assume that we've got an experienced clinic owner and they've they've got a, a company and there's a mm-hmm. but they don't have a shareholders agreement and there's a bit of tension between a couple of different owners of a company. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for those guys? There's a bit of conflict but no agreement. I guess making sure that when you have meetings, you have agendas and, and that you know, that you document the conversations and getting advice when you need it, like speaking to an expert is always a good idea. And as you say, it is hard at that point to put in a shareholders agreement. It's much better to do it when everyone's getting along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... I guess the take home there is bite the bullet and have a, a conversation that um, is a bit tricky. Okay, so let's change tact a little bit here, Sarah. Let's talk about employees versus contractors. The uh, the elephant in the room, it's on everyone's lips and ears and eyes at the moment. Let's assume that, uh, again, the similar example, we've got a startup who's thinking about bringing on their first team member. Mm-hmm. Should they consider contracting or subcontracting, uh, which is really apparently really easy or so it's a spouse really easy get an abn and someone just you just pay an invoice or is an employee arrangement something that really should be considered strongly i guess there's a few things to consider the first one is on the ato website there is a contractor versus employee little test and it's got all these questions that you can go through will you require them to work from a specific place can they get somebody else to do their work if they're not available will they need to be wearing your uniform are you going to direct the times at which they work so there's a few things from a legal point of view Mm -hmm. that mean you can very easily establish whether or not they are an employee or a contractor. And it's not, as a practice owner, it's not a risk you want to take. So we had a clinic owner recently ring us and they had a contractor working for them, practitioner, and that that person had gone and found out that they were an employee, made a demand for unpaid super, unpaid leave. And as the clinic owner... You're responsible for that and no matter how hard you try, you can't necessarily control what other people are going to do. You just have to um, play mm. by the rules in this one, I think. Um, so just just to be clear on that situation, Sarah, yeah. you might have what you think is a contractor arrangement with someone. They're working under what you think is a contractor setup. If, mm. they, if they do that for 12 months, maybe two years, and then decide they want to say, no, I was an employee, Yeah. what's the consequences of that? Uh, potential back pay for super, unpaid super, back pay for sick leave, uh, annual leave potentially. Wow. Yep. So it's a big risk. The other thing that is worth looking at is the margin that you can make on employees versus contractors. So okay. you can use co- casual employees and taking into account the hourly rate and super and insurance you pay on them, you might actually be able to margin them better for business purposes that way um, than having them as a contractor anyway. So the same sort of protection, I suppose. Yeah, that's interesting. Leave, they work when you need them to, not set hours necessarily, but 
if you're using contractors because you want to pay them only when they're working, so only if they're seeing patients, yeah, there's. I guess there's different benefits. I guess what you're getting at there, I know it's tough, like, it's a tough one. <laughs> it's the million. Well, there's thing. a lot to it. I, I, I guess what you're touching on is that some people's mindsets might be stuck in a bit of a traditional sense that contractors can get paid a percentage and employees have to be an hourly rate. It's not necessarily the case, is that right? With employees, it doesn't just have to be an hourly rate. You can structure in bonuses or commissions. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So whatever you think is going to work with your business, and I'm sure that you guys train people on these things or or people share experiences in the group about what's worked for them mm-hmm. and um, learning from other people's experiences is the biggest biggest thing, I think. Okay, that's really good advice for, for the startup and the early stage to be fairly careful around contracting and sham contracting. Let's move into the clinic that's been in existence for a long time and has had contractors for a long time, whether sham or real. What should they be considering around moving forward and tackling this topic of having contractors on their team? I think as you grow, your intellectual property development becomes more important and with contractors that is a risk because you don't control what they create uh, you don't you don't necessarily own it if it's outside the contracting arrangement so having those clauses really carefully drafted in both contract agreements and employment agreements that's one thing that we found with the clinic owner recently that she's now growing quite significantly um, an OT business and finding that employees are giving a higher level of commitment and matching the values better uh, as she's growing rather than having that combination of employees and contractors. So I guess it depends on how you run your clinic as well because as everything legal, it depends. Maybe (laughs) all this uh, episode, it depends. (laughs) Yes, yes. I love it. I guess the the point there and the take-home is that if you've got some contractors on your team, it's worth thinking about and having the discussion. Question for you, does that mean that you potentially expose yourself as the business owner to back paying what we're employment employee? uh, Absolutely, yes. But still better to tackle that as soon as possible? I would say so. Mm. Otherwise, you end up with a cash flow disaster probably. Sure. It's something that can be managed if you're in control (laughs) versus just letting the sleeping dog lie. That's right. Okay. And so uh, I really love what you touched on there. We can get caught up in employees versus contractors. At the end of the day, if we're health professionals that are passionate around running thriving clinics that deliver amazing experiences sometimes contractors limit our ability to do that. Employees that are on board with culture and values and are committed to the whole of your practice mean that you can really help, uh, they can help you achieve your vision, mission and values far more than contractors, right? Yeah, particularly if those contractors either run their own practice uh, on other days or if they work for other practices, it can be hard to have them all rowing in the same direction. Mm, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your, your advice. I know it's tricky uh, and obviously all the advice given in this call is general in nature. Um, yeah, so we really, yeah, of course. We really appreciate it. I want to look back to your story and you legal and what you do outside of you legal. 
I'm sure clinic owners are fascinated as to how you're able to run remotely and manage your team. So I'd love to touch on some of the ways that you manage a remote team, but also what you do outside of work. You're on the board of a, a charity, of a foundation. So I'd love you just to touch on those two, managing a remote team and contributing outside of work. Sure. So managing a remote team, it's so funny. I am part of the, a business group and there was a woman I was talking to and she goes, um, how do you manage a, a team of 20 Like when you're not all in the same office? And I was like, I don't know, it's pretty easy. We have a weekly huddle mm-hmm. um, and we have actions from that huddle. We do quarterly planning. Um, but this woman had 2,000 employees and I was like, I don't think it's that hard compared to having 2,000 employees. Which, <laughs> no, it's different. Contractors are different. And I'm like, okay. So, yeah, we, we, we try and keep aligned. We have a weekly huddle. Mm-hmm. With the core team employees, we have a daily huddle and we go through certain questions each day and week that's based on our goal for the quarter. Right. We also do annual planning and the annual planning fits within that quarterly planning. But what happens at our huddle? We go through, um, we say one word open for how we're feeling right now. So that kind of sets the tone for the meeting. Wow. Um, then we go through good news. Mm-hmm. Go through the business indicators, so where we're at with our payables, where we're at with our overhead costs, how um, how we've gone with sales that week. We yep. talk about what's in the news, so upcoming opportunities that each right. of the teams see. Then we would go individually through what our goals were for the last week, if we achieved them, and what our goal for the upcoming week is and how that fits in with the overall goal for the quarter. We then do a... Um, needs and leads section so if there's anything that anyone in the team needs from each other we can go through that uh we talk about what's not working in the meeting whether we can do anything to improve and we close with one word on how we're feeling and so often that's kind of gone from a bit flat to pumped okay actually connecting with everyone for 15 minutes a week makes a huge difference for team morale and yeah, um, and how yeah. do you do that, Sarah? That's on a video call or on yeah. Skype. Yeah, great. That's fascinating. And uh, you're able to deliver, I guess, a, an interesting question. Often many practice owners have different clinic locations. You're able to still deliver a consistent service despite your remote team? Yeah, we are. And we always do what we say we're going to do. It's one of our points of difference. Lots of uh, people, I guess, in all services don't necessarily deliver what they say they're going to deliver in a timely way. So that's really important to us. And uh, uh, yeah, we, I guess we, I, I do a, a regular newsletter to my team so they know what's going on. It, helps me not be on the phone to them all the time telling them the same things. Right. And, yeah, I, I really feel like recruiting for values has been a core win for, for our team. Uh, and, and if people aren't values aligned, they don't tend to last very long. Great. Tough call to make sometimes, but mm-hmm. worth it in the long run. Absolutely. Okay. So um, touch on think- what happens outside of work. Yeah, impact. So uh, for so through you legal we had been doing lots of giving and we had that all over the place like we were giving to amnesty and giving our time to things and we recently did a review about that after I learned about the um, UN goals for global sustainability so mm-hmm. there's 20 of them and I wanted to know how we could funnel our giving for the business 
sure. into that. So I don't know if you know about it, but I found an organisation called B1G1. It's a buy one, give one. It's a not-for-profit and we became members of that. And now every book people buy, every matter that's referred to us, we give um, and we've cho- our team chose a particular um, cause that's through buy one, give one, um, which is to support remote communities um, with their learning hub that they have, uh, it's in Queensland. So um, we either give a day or a week, um, depending on the cause, for birthdays we do it for our team members and and for our community. So that's been really great. Um, I'm mentioning it because it's great. It's been great for team engagement. Okay. It's been great for our community engagement, our, but our, all our stakeholders, our team members, as well as clients and referrers. Mm-hmm. And um, it. Because the team chose it, it's it's meaningful for everyone. So, mm. um, yeah, that's uh, really been really exciting, and I really recommend that to to business owners as well because it's it's so easy and right. it's yeah yeah we, we've so got to, we've got to exist for global kind of opportunities there as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I love it. I think as, as clinics and businesses, we've got to exist for more than just delivering services, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, if we, if we need a little tax write-off, better to find an opportunity that really resonates with uh, with you and, and therefore your team. That's um, that's fascinating. I, I love it. You're, you're doing some amazing things in the legal world um, outside of work but also in our world, in the health profession, the medical and health world uh can you tell us a little bit about how people can learn more from you in regards to you legal sarah bartholomews and the medical health world yes i also uh, also i'm on uh, on a couple of boards and i think that um is really good idea for business owners so okay. i'm the chair of an organization called the catalyst foundation which you mentioned before we help elderly people and people with disabilities get access to information here in south australia and um that's been just so worthwhile for me because i sure i run a business but i don't think that capitalism is going to save the world i do believe that people need a safety net mm-hmm. and especially those who are most vulnerable so we do help people with english as a second language um average people, LGBTI people who are ageing um, have been discriminated against for their whole lives and so, mm. you know, they, they often need a, an extra special safe pair of hands so mm-hmm. we can provide that. I work as a mentor for the Think Lab at the University of South Australia, so helping businesses that are an, in an incubator grow um, and that's great for my business learning as well. Right. And I also work with the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, which is a global organisation that helps business owners because I think even though it might seem a bit silly, uh, I think you'll understand this, that business owners are, are vulnerable as well and mm-hmm. that they need support because they're out there putting themselves on the line every day for them, for their team, for their community. So I work on the on the board of the entrepreneurs organization here in south australia too so <laughs> i love it thank you they're, for my, they're, they're my other giving activities <laughs> good good I love it. and that's really how important. to find out more about us we uh have a website it's www.ulegal.com.au uh so there's information there we've got a blog focused at health professionals as well so we've got a we've got a a newsletter for health professionals uh, as well as a general business one. So you can sign up for that. I've also just written a book called Growing a Medical Practice, which is 
focused at doctors, but the information in it will be 100% relevant to the listeners because we talk about using social media for health professionals and kind of things that are quite specific to your area that aren't necessarily in general business books. Yeah, I love it. Um, so where can people get that? They can get that on your website, can they? Yeah, so that will be in the published part of our website and uh, I'm happy for anyone who's listened to this podcast if they put the code GROW in, I will personalise that book for them. They should be uh, uh, for sale but they might not be available. They're being printed towards the end of May but if you buy them, I will ensure you're one of the first to get a copy as soon as they arrive. Great. And so that's using the code word GROW, as in Grow My Clinic podcast, which is fantastic. Sarah, you're amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you for for what you do for for our profession and our industry, Um, at least in my personal experience. It's pretty tricky to find advice and just general education, but also advice that's um, that's unbiased, that's clear, that's relevant. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for sharing your insights on the Grow My Clinic podcast. And listeners, you can get all the show notes at www.clinicmastery.com forward slash podcasts. You'll be able to find the episode with Sarah Bartholomew's from Ulegal. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. And uh, listeners, Thanks, we look forward Dad. to bringing you another episode really soon. This is the Grow My Clinic podcast by Clinic Mastery, where we help you deliver amazing client experiences to grow your clinic. 